Welcome to the University of Washington's Political Economy Forum. We bring together diverse scholars, policymakers, and citizens to discuss current public policy issues, to inform the public about them, and to find evidence-based solutions. Feel free to visit our website at uwpoliticaleconomy.com. We publish new episodes of this podcast every week. If you have questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please contact us on Twitter at ForumUW or email us at uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Hello, everyone. My name is Nicholas Wittstock. I'm a fellow at the Forum, and today I speak to Enrico Moretti. Enrico is the Michael P.V. and Donald Weil Professor of Economics at the University of California, Berkeley. We speak about the economics of cities, and human capital clusters, agglomeration effects, the importance of educational institutions and innovation, but also the effect of COVID-19. I learned an enormous amount from Enrico about the economic geography of the United States, and I'm sure that you will too. So without further ado, I bring you Enrico Moretti. Hello, Enrico. Hi, Nicolas. How are you? I'm good. Uh, Thank you so much for being on. Um, Enrico, you study the geography and economics of cities, education, health, mostly focused on the U.S. Both Barack Obama and Paul Krugman, I think, recommended your 2012 book, uh, The New Geography of Jobs, is one of the most important works on uh, how the contemporary American economy works. I imagine things have changed at least a little bit since 2012. I wonder uh, what your thoughts are. So maybe just describe real quick for us, before COVID-19, before 2020, what did the U.S. economic geography look like? How did the U.S. economy work? Before COVID, uh, the U.S. labor market was doing well on some metrics and not so well on other metrics. Uh, Employment was growing at the the brisk pace. This was the long recovery uh, that started with the Great Recession of 2008, 2009. Uh, and employment has been growing for, for basically since then uh, at, a, at a regular pace. So when COVID hit, the unemployment rate was the lowest uh, in my lifetime. It was around, you know, it was below 4%, just above 3%, which is incredibly low for, for historical standards. So in terms of job creation, we were doing fine. In terms of earnings and wage growth and family income, uh, the picture was much more mixed. For a large part of the country, wage and earning growth have been uh, uh, quite slow. You, you might say stagnant. And there were parts of the country where wages were even uh, shrinking. Uh, and at the other extreme, uh, there were a number of regions and a number of cities where wage, earnings, and income were growing at a very big space. These are the cities that I describe in my book. They were already doing well in 2012, but since then, the pace of their growth has accelerated. These are places that are characterized by a very strong presence of highly educated uh, residents and a high degree of innovation in their firms. Places like where I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, where you're based, uh, Seattle, Puget Sound area, Boston, Washington, D.C., Austin. Raleigh, Durham. These are some examples of places that were uh, whose labor market was on fire. That that showed up in very brisk pace of of, of earnings and, and income. In the book, you described this as a great divergence. You know, some some people argue that this is part of increasing inequality in the U.S. of, of different sorts. 
what exactly is driving this dynamic of creating these, as you also described as peaks and valleys, right, within the U.S. Uh, economic geography? The, the cities that were doing well in terms of wage and earning growth were quite a diverse bunch in terms of geography, in terms of state, in terms of even politics. But they had two things in common. They had a very high share of workers with a college degree or a master degree, typically above 40 or 45% of the workforce was highly educated. And the second thing that had in common was that they had a very strong presence in the tradable sector, in the part of the economy that sells outside that community. A very strong presence of high tech and other in sectors that are, that are, that are in the innovation sector. So like science, pharmaceutical, entertainment, digital entertainment, finance, marketing, and so on. These industries have a lot of investment in R&D. Uh, productivity tends to be very high, and they, they are the driver of these local economies. Why is it that it's only certain cities, right? As you say, it's not cities across the board necessarily. Um, it's only specific cities. What is it? Um, wh why are we seeing this pattern in the United States at the moment? It's because the sectors that are been driving labor demand in these cities have a strong innate tendency to cluster geographically in a handful of, of places. Instead of spreading equally across all cities in the U.S., they have a tendency of concentrating in a handful of locations. Now, most sectors of the U.S. economy. In fact, most sectors in all advanced economies have a general tendency to agglomerate. Uh, this is true in manufacturing, for example. But the tendency in the innovation sector is much stronger. Economists have coined the term agglomeration economies to signify the benefits uh, for these industries of uh, being geographically very clustered. Cite a few numbers from a recent paper uh, where I'm looking at the number of scientists and innovators and engineers in various fields. If you look at where the computer scientists, the active computer scientists are in the U.S., the, the, the top 10 cities account for more than 70% of mm. all the computer scientists in the U.S. There are about 280 metro areas in the study. So like, it, the, the top 10 account for the lion's share in this sector. And, and sectors like semiconductors or life science are even more, even more concentrated. Which, which means that the, the places that are able to attract that type of industry then enjoy uh, agglomeration economies that, that mm -hmm. essentially keep attracting more of the same. Interesting. So is there any evidence of data science, for example, as an industry to, as it becomes more mature, to spread more geographically? Or is it um, an ongoing agglomeration in specific cities that you're describing? It's a great question. I think that as industries mature, they do have a tendency to spread more geographically, but they have a tendency to spread geographically certain functions. For example, mm -hmm. this is not specific to the innovation sector. Like the finance started this process 200 years ago and is still ongoing. Originally, finance in the US was concentrated essentially in Manhattan. And then finance started decentralizing some functions to cheaper locations. So now if you call your bank, most likely, even if the bank is a quarter in Manhattan, most likely you're talking with somebody in a place like Arizona or, or India, which is much cheaper. Than. The same applies to, to innovation. Silicon Valley firms have long opened uh, offices in other locations, but they retain the key functions, particularly R&D inside, inside Silicon Valley. The same is true for companies, you know, for life science companies in Boston or, or internet companies in, in Seattle. 
so to what extent is this a phenomenon of outsourcing and offshoring where you know this is ultimately a phenomenon of this uh, sort of designed in California but manufactured in China business model that has really just gotten rid of um, a lot of manufacturing jobs but also of middle management to a large extent in the United States so is it really the case that maybe you know for the United States economy at this point you know the only good jobs that are left are designers you know, like in the sort of designed in California analogy here? I wouldn't go that far, but I would I would point out, uh, you know, Apple is a great example of what you're talking about. Apple pioneered this uh, very geographically, very optimized supply mm-hmm. chain where essentially the their production, the physical components are made in places like Taiwan. Uh, the assembly of the parts in, in Shenzhen, China, but the design, the headquarter jobs, the engineering jobs, and the uh, all the ancillary functions like legal, HR, are all in Cupertino. Now, mm-hmm. from the point of view of a place like Cupertino, the number of jobs actually has increased because the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the footprint of Apple in terms of employment in there uh, has benefited from the fact that Apple can make this the physical component of this product uh, far away. But of course, in terms of production, that has meant that some production jobs, the most production jobs are, are in, for Apple are, are not in the U.S. anymore. This is very representative of many parts of the U.S. labor market. Um, th- there is an additional component, which is outsourcing within the U.S. As I mentioned, there are most tech firms, the most innovation sector firms, have multiple locations in the U.S. And so they put different functions uh, in different places. Some functions are more cost-sensitive and their functions are less cost-sensitive and they're much more dependent on the agglomeration economies that, that we're talking about. The key functions tend to remain in the core Nico Valley or the core of Seattle or Boston. Could you expand a little bit what exactly encompasses the innovation sector in the United States at this point? Is it only uh, data science, technology, Cupertino, Apple, those kind of um, things, or, or does it encompass anything else? No, I think it's a broad, it's a much broader slice of the economy. It encompasses, I think, a very important component is, is pharmaceutical life science and all the research that goes into making medical products or medical device products. It also part of, of the financial sector, clearly, within within. There's a lot of patents in finance, people don't know, but there's a lot of innovation in finance. And if you go to places like Southern California, it's a lot of it, a lot of innovation, there's a lot of innovation in, in digital entertainment mm-hmm. and uh, in the entertainment industry. So I would say that it's a very diverse group of industries that have, they have two things in common. They invest a lot in R&D, they make a product that is unique and is, it commands a good value added generates a good value added. And also they, they make intensive use of, of human capital, meaning that the workers in those industries mm-hmm. do have high level of, of schooling, typically graduate degrees, master degrees, or, or even PhDs. So how do cities impact, um, or do cities also generate mid-skill employment, or is it only within those high-skill sectors that you described? And one interesting aspect of the cities that I mentioned, the cities that have been attracting a very strong innovation sector is that uh, it's not that they're growing, that their labor demand is growing because everybody works in, in iPad. Even mm. in Silicon Valley, even in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is arguably the, 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 the extreme case, the one where 
innovation is the most present. Even here, not more than 20 to 22% of the workforce is innovation. The vast majority of people are not working for Google or for Apple or for Facebook or for a biotech startup. Um, about two thirds of the workforce, uh, the typical US city, is employed in the local service sector. Mm-hmm. So that, that economy is called non-tradable. It sells, you know, it sells services in the local economy. Mm-hmm. And this is true you know, for the average US city, but it's also true of the innovation hubs of the US, including Silicon Valley, including Seattle, including Boston and Austin and so on. What's interesting is that what you see historically is that when, you, when a city, you see a growth in the innovation sector, you also see growth in the uh, local service sector. Uh, there's, there's a strong multiplier of innovation sector in the rest of the market. And uh, the way it works is that the, the innovation sector when it, when it hires, when it expands by bringing in more jobs to a city, well-paid jobs, some of those salaries are spent locally right. uh, and support the demand for local services. So some of those salaries end up in the pockets of the, the service providers, which are quite far from being having PhD in mathematics or in engineers, like people who work in a store, people mm-hmm. in a restaurant, people who provide childcare or teachers, the doctors, the, the lawyers, the architects, the construction workers, and so on, that are ultimately supported by labor demand in the tradable sector. Absolutely. What about real wages in cities? Um, I think pretty much the only thing people talk about in Seattle, um, and I'm assuming in San Francisco that's even more so the case, are the, the enormous uh, living costs, right? Uh, which is not just... Um, associated with rents, right, or, or housing costs more generally, but a whole, a whole bunch of other different things, right, that get more expensive the more of the, you know, very, very well-educated people come in, students coming in too, right? Um, how does that play out in cities like the ones you're describing? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, I'm, I'm right now I'm finishing uh, a, a project that I've been working on for, for the past three years with a colleague, Rebecca Diamond at Stanford, where we're directly measuring what you're asking is the real is the standard of living that mm-hmm. different type of workers can afford in each city. Because the city we've been talking about, you know, the star cities, these innovation hubs, you know, workers get very high nominal wages. There's no question that they pay some of the highest mm-hmm. wages in the US, in fact, in the world. On the other hand, the cost of living is also high. As you pointed out, housing is more expensive, but it's not just housing. It's pretty much everything else that, mm. that is sold uh, in those cities more expensive. So if you go for a, you an haircut in one of these cities, uh, you, for the same quality of haircut, you're going to pay more in a place like San Francisco than in a place like Indianapolis as a city because it costs more to rent that store and it costs more to pay that barber to live there. And so we have, we're leveraging a, a, a novel data set that measures how much people buy Mm-hmm. Every, every transaction that, that, that 5 million households uh, in the U.S., represent the sample of 5 million households in the U.S., make uh, for an entire year. And we see everything they buy, and we see the prices, uh, and we, we, we relate uh, how much they can buy in terms of not just the expenditures, but how much that deflated by, by local cost of living, how much they can take home in each city. Uh, and what we find is quite interesting is the fact that for the high-skilled workers, for the college degrees, for the workers who have college degree or master degree, 
essentially, there's not a lot of relationship between local cost of living and how much you can afford. So the, your salaries, the salaries in the expensive cities are high enough that they compensate one-to-one uh, for the additional cost of living. This is less true for the lower, for, for work with lower level of school. For example, for the families where they work, where the head of the household is a high school graduate, uh, we see a negative relationship between standard living and, and cost. Just in that the, the most expensive cities tend to, yes, they certainly pay higher nominal salaries, but that's not enough to more than to compensate uh, exactly workers for the, for, the, for the cost of living. Now, there are other things that are attractive in the city. So it doesn't mean that people shouldn't be living in the cities because there are amenities, there are, there are, there are schools, there are, there, there's a number of other reasons for why people might decide to live in those cities. But as far as market consumption, stuff that you can buy with your salary, with, with, with money, uh, we see a negative relationship with this. Wow. Okay. I would not have expected that. That's really interesting. But at the same time, it seems like more and more people want to go to cities. Is that still the case, right? I mean, it seems like... Um one reason why prices are so extremely high, right, is because a lot of people are trying to move into those cities. Uh, it's If we're talking about pre-COVID, yes, that's indeed the case. Uh, the, the, you're absolutely right. The, the, the main reason why the cost of land, the cost of design, and therefore the cost of everything else is high, is exactly because more, many people won't move there. And in my mind, that's mostly driven by very strong, very brisk labor demand from the education sector. From, from the sector of the economy that, that commands these high wages. Um, we can talk about the, how COVID might have changed this picture. Right. Yeah, exactly. I want to um, just one last question because I'm interested in what's your um, estimation of how attractive these uh, high paying jobs really are that are produced in those cities? Because, you know, you hear a lot of horror stories about, you know, 100-hour weeks at Amazon, you know, and being tracked at every moment and having to answer emails until 2 a.m. and things like that. Um, what's your take on that? I haven't done research directly on this, but uh, those are typically sought-after positions. Uh, mm-hmm. These jobs in large tech firms uh, might be demanding, but I don't think that uh, the, the, these firms uh, have a shortage, have a, have a high have a problem in, in, in having workers willing to work with them. So it, that tells me that probably these are work environments that, that demand a lot of mm-hmm. skills, but they, they offer a lot of career progression. Uh, okay. There is the, the, the economic literature is beginning to now do more work on you know, this on-the-job amenities of the type that you described, uh, meaning uh, how stressful is amenity mm-hmm. or amenities. It could be the amount of stress, uh, it could be the flexible hours, everything else that, that comes outside the paycheck. Mm-hmm. Story, labor economists have focused on paychecks, but I, I think we're beginning to extend our understanding to other other aspects uh, of, of, the, of, the work, of the workplace. And they seem to matter a lot. I mean, they're, they're certainly, you know, they're very important, very salient. Right, yeah, I, I would imagine so. You already mentioned uh, COVID, which is sort of the big um, elephant in the room. But even before that, right, I mean, I I suppose since the invention of um, any kind of uh, communication technology, people have been projecting the death of distance. Your work really shows the value of proximity, really, right, of social interaction, of of, of, um, knowledge spillovers and agglomeration effects and um, things of that nature. But now, right, we've um, all gone through or 
a lot of us have gone through this um, weird social experiment of sorts. Um, how is COVID unraveling a lot of these um, previous developments that we were discussing until just now? That's the obviously the trillion dollar question. And it's a question that um, has, is receiving, not surprisingly, a lot of attention in the media. And the typical narrative that you hear in the media is that COVID has made this previously successful high-cost cities has dealt serious blow to these places. And in some analysis that you read sometimes in the New York Times or in the Washington Post, is that it's almost as if this blow is, is almost deadly. Mm. Certainly is the case that these places have lost, a lot of these places have lost population uh, in the last year. And this likely reflects the fact that most office workers during COVID can work from home. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, just to uh, measure it right now, in San Francisco and New York, 85% of office workers are working from home. And uh, so in my mind, it's not particularly surprising that right now with all the local amenities, all the attractive urban amenities of these places essentially closed uh, until recently. With school for the children remote and for and with work from home, the norm, to me, it's not surprising that some of, some people have decided to leave these most mm -hmm. cities and to be somewhere else. If anything, I'm actually surprised that, that so many people stayed, uh, honestly. But the real question is not what's happening now, because this is... Obviously, this period will end. Uh, mm -hmm. and we're hopefully beginning to see the beginning of this end. Uh, the real question for me is what's going to happen next winter and most importantly next spring and next summer after we are really back to mm. safe around each other and after the health crisis that has prompted these this closures is, is resolved and after employers and, and employees have enough time to readjust to the new normal. So the real question to me is not really what's happening now, which is mm. not particularly surprising that <laughs> yeah. you know, working from home, uh, we were mandated to shut down large part of the economy and we couldn't really physically meet. The mm. real question is in the medium long run, how will the economic geography of the US be different from what was seen until February 2020? And I, I don't, I think that the, the economic forces that generated the rise of the cities, uh, I don't see any reason for why they're going to be any different or any weaker in mm. the foreseeable future. I don't see any reason for why the agglomeration economies that have driven labor demand, income progressions in, in the city for the past 20 years would, would, would disappear. Uh, I think that the, the, by and large, the new normal will look a lot the old one with some, with some changes. Uh, so for example, I expect that the share of work from home uh, will be lower than it is now, 85% obviously, but probably higher than it was before. I actually doing uh, right now a project that, that tracks job openings in city by city. And uh, I, I'm measuring the share of job openings that are uh, 100% work from home. So they're advertised as you can stay home. Okay? So what you see is actually quite stark. You see that the number of job openings that uh, are advertised 100% work from home was fairly stable in the couple of years before COVID. It jumps up during COVID. It triples. But it triples from a very low base. Right. It was 2% before COVID. And now in most 
uh, in most US cities, it reaches 6%, okay? So, and it stabilizes uh, in the past six months. So yes, there was a clear, sharp, discontinuous increase in work from home, 100% work from home positions. But there still remains a trivial fraction of all the job openings. So I'm not saying that there's not gonna be changes due to COVID. I'm saying that these changes probably will not be large enough to change the general tendency in the agglomeration of labor demand that we're seeing. Are you seeing anything um, that resembles, um, or are you predicting anything that resembles um, ongoing labor shortages? I know that was a big topic that people were going crazy about a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, and people are still, obviously, uh, there's, all sec- there's some sector of the economy that are facing labor shortages. Uh, those are most likely short-run phenomenon. Uh, the, for example, the restaurant industry uh, is funding that uh, a lot of employees are finding difficult to hire new workers. But likely, this is, it's, it's not something that, you know, it, it probably measured in weeks, months, not in years. So if we're looking at next winter or next spring, ultimately, labor supply will flow to those. Uh, they might have to raise the wages a little bit more. There is, this is often the case during uh, recovery after a session, that uh, it takes time for labor demand to meet labor supply. Right. Once you disrupt the work relationship, then it takes time for that work relationship to to be reestablished. And this recession is unique because the the, the destruction and the closures were sudden, were faster Mm -hmm. than any other previous recession in history. And then the recovery is also, uh, is not smooth. It's, it's, it's at some point <laughs> we're being vaccinated and all the restaurants can reopen. So it's almost inevitable that there's going to be frictions in, in reconstructing that job relationship. Uh, but they're not going to be, they're not structural. They're, they just reflect the short-term uh, fact that all the restaurants are opening at the same time. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's, a, that's going to be a defining feature of U.S. cities. I think, I think the real question is more for U.S., for, more expensive U.S. cities is how much work from home, how widespread work from home will be. And most importantly, whether there will be a large number of jobs that are 100% work from home, or the more typical case will be more work from home like than before, but typical case will be work from home one day a week or two days a week. In that case, you still retain the link between place of work and place of residence, because if you, have, mm. if you can work from home you know, one day a week, you still need to be commuting distance from your employer. And in that case, I don't see you know, big structural changes in, in the economy of the cities. It seems that across the political aisle in the United States, there is a desire or a romantization maybe of America at mid-century. Interestingly, it seems to me that um, you know, there are obvious you know, um, overtures to try to return to um, a different you know, economic geography in the United States from the political right. But um, now, to a certain extent, I feel like you, you also see that from Democratic politicians. Um, do you think that you know, these efforts to combine climate policy with big push economic policy could have significant impact on revitalizing these uh, de-industrializing towns in the American um, Rust Belt? I, I think that the, that political wins that you described for the U.S. are actually not just in the U.S., they're, they're widespread in many countries. Uh, for example, if you look at the Politics in the UK are not all that different. The Brexit vote is not unlike uh, the, the 2016 vote here, uh, and it's heavily correlated with, with the, the, the 
the industrialization of large part of the northern, northern England, just like transport here was sadly correlated with the, the industrialization of large part of Rust Belt in the US. And the Gilets Jaunes in France, that's another phenomenon that is quite related, quite driven by similar forces, and particularly the, the decline of the small and middle towns in the provinces, driven in large part by, by the same forces that we have seen here. In terms of the policies, I think there is a lot of good reason for uh, being in favor of aggressive climate economic policies. I think those policies are they're justified uh, based on the enormous challenge that climate change poses for, for us and for our children. I, I think that th- those motivations are, in my mind, are strong enough to, to justify those, those investments. We can, we might or might not want to use those investments in a geographical, strategically geographical in a way that is strategic geographically, but I don't think that's that's the core of those policies. Those policies mm. take place, uh, and you know, their incidents, their geographical incidents, who is going to benefit from those policies? I think will ultimately will be a very complicated function of exactly what type of incentives and taxes and subsidies that we're, we're going to give. So I, I don't think that geography here is the main is the main, should is or should be the main the main motivating factor. But it seems that the geographic skew in economic outcomes is definitely undermining political willingness to further underwrite um, the kind of economic policy that might be um, beneficial to um, the innovation economies that you described. Um, I think that there is, after the 2016 election in the US, there was a, a lot of people in blue states thinking that policy, the shift job to uh, red states were somehow politically justified because of the because of the, the, the shocking nature of the 2016 election and the perceived cry for help, of, of, mm. of, 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 at least how it was interpreted by many right. for, for some parts of the country. You know, the I'm not sure how how effective federal policy can be in mm-hmm. being labor demand, uh, where labor demand it's it's very scarce. Uh, in the past, uh, there have been very ambitious federal programs that have brought massive federal investments in areas that were lagging behind. I studied in particular the Tennessee Valley of mm-hmm. experience, which was a massive federal intervention that started in the 30s and went, went on uh, for decades after that. And uh, you, you could tell that th- that program did change the economic trajectory of a region, the Tennessee Valley region, which at the time was essentially developing country and was able to catch up uh, through massive federal investment. But it's not clear to me that the same strategy would work mm-hmm. uh, if you were to apply it today. When Roosevelt went in, generated this, this inflow of federal money for the Tennessee Valley Authority in the 30s, the Tennessee Valley Authority didn't have electricity and didn't have roads. So mm-hmm. um, it was pretty clear what the federal government could do there. So they built roads and they gave it the built electricity and Industries, manufacturing fall. We were also lucky that uh, World War II hit, and so the demand for energy-intensive aluminium production uh, went to the roof, and that brought a lot of generated a lot of activity. Now, I don't see how today you can apply the same cookbook to the redevelopment of, of the Rust Belt. It would be very hard because it's not like the Rust Belt lacks electricity or roads. Um, it's that. Employment in the manufacturing sector has been shrinking for the past 50 years. 
And that, that's true both in the US, but pretty much every other developed country from Germany to Italy right. to Japan to France. And that's not something that reflects local policies. Uh, it, it reflects a deep-seated uh, shift in labor demand and the automatization of factories. So it's hard to see how in that context yeah. uh, a massive inflow of federal money can turn the tide. There are some, there are a lot of thoughtful proposals. John Gruber has a, came out with a book last year on ways in which federal investment can help uh, Rust Belt communities uh, through the generating uh, innovation jobs in that sector. Uh, he was not, he didn't have in mind places like Flint or Detroit. He had in mm-hmm. mind more places like Rochester, uh, you know, mm-hmm. to New York, like former innovation sector capitals that are that have fallen on, on, on hard times. So places that are not completely, you know, economically not struggling in dramatic ways, but kind of middle of the road uh, uh, economic, local economies that, that could be revived. And so he had a number of creative ideas in, in that sense. But so far, you know, it's really hard to point to examples of cities or regions in the U.S. where the innovation sector was jump-started by direct, explicit state policy or county mm-hmm. policy. There are that many examples of success. Do you see the trend towards um, extreme agglomeration in, in, in certain very successful cities in the U.S. Uh, continuing then? And um, does that mean that ultimately, you know, there's just not going to be the demand for, you know, a lot of like low and mid-skill manuf- or mass employment in, in those kinds of um, circumstances? It's just not going to be part of the U.S. economy anymore? Or as we said in the beginning, do you see the possibility of diffusion, dispersion, geographic dispersion of those kinds of jobs once maybe some of the tasks become a little bit more standardized, potentially? Yeah, I don't see it as a, as a dichotomous uh, black and white development. I think, I think both things could continue, meaning that the success of the current innovation hubs uh, might continue with a, in, a continued concentration of a uh, certain type of occupation, certain type of jobs some of the R&D jobs, together with some dispersion of some functions mm-hmm. uh, that, that are complementary to those, to, those, to, 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 to those industries. That has been, it, it, it was going on well before COVID and will likely to continue. Places like Utah, Colorado, you know, a lot of their job growth is actually driven by that, by that model. These are uh, innovation sector firms that open satellite offices uh, in Salt Lake City or in Denver. Uh, and that that has been going on for ten years. Uh, I, I don't. I, I think that that doesn't per se uh, hurt the innovation hubs. If anything, it actually makes the, those those companies more more successful, more profitable, and therefore help. If you had a magic wand, what would be the kind of education um, reform that you would enact in the United States? I think that uh, in my mind, there's no question that investment in in education low level, the middle level, or the high level of is one of the best policies, one of the best public investment that local governments, state governments, and the federal government can make. It's one mm-hmm. of the, best, the way I think about it is one of the best industrial policies that <laughs> can, be, can be adopted. There's a growing body of evidence that suggests that investment in education more than pays for itself. That has many benefits, both for the individual who received that education, but also for the communities where those individuals live. And that it can have transformative effect on 
the type of jobs that those communities can attract, the type of employers that they can they can attract, and the type of product that, that those firms can generate. So I'm not necessarily an expert in education reform. So I don't know where the most important low-hanging fruits are in in improving the education system in the U.S. in the sense that I'm a consumer of the literature. I'm not a producer. I haven't written on it. I, I follow eagerly all the seminars on these topics, but I cannot claim that I've, I've done anything uh, in this area personally. So I, I, I would give that magic wand to people who have spent their life <laughs> studying school reform and, and, and school policies different, whether it's elementary school, middle school, high school, or college, there are some of my colleagues and by extension, a lot of other economists have been studying this, this, this policy eagerly. But what's clear to me is that wherever, whichever level we, we decide to invest in, it's low, middle, or high, I think those are very good investments. They're investments that more than pay for themselves. Nice. Extending the question about political and economic institutions, uh, as well as industrial strategy, you mentioned that a lot of these um, economic as well as political phenomena are ongoing, you know, across advanced democratic capitalist countries. Do you feel like some of them are handling uh, these developments better in any way? Do you feel like there are um, institutional innovations potentially that the U.S. could learn from? I think it's uh, that's a great question. I don't. I, I I think there's no country that can. There's no magic wand in the, in this area. So so regional economic policy and re- restoring the imbalance. Restoring a balance, geographical balance, is something that takes enormous time, and the the, the tools at disposal of policymakers are are not always right. uh, very effective. There are governments that have been address uh, putting this more at the forefront of their agenda. For example, the UK government, the current UK government, uh, has this this leveling up initiative, which is essentially is trying to bring some good jobs away from the London area into northern England, cities that were the proud manufacturing past, but have been fallen in our time. I don't know enough about the credibility of this effort or the promise of this effort. So I would say that uh, there are other countries that have taken this more directly, more explicitly upon as, as, as a goal. But I would say that all Western countries share uh, an uphill battle. This is not an easy problem to solve. We don't, it's really hard to generate labor demand where it doesn't exist. Right, and uh, it's really hard to do it by by fiat. By, 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 by. There, that doesn't mean there are no policy tools at our disposal. There are, uh, and but but it's not something that you know it takes time uh, and it's costly and there's a lot of uncertainty. It's, it's much harder than it was when FDR <laughs> decided to to do it for 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 the Tennessee Valley. In the mm. Right now, it's much. I think what's the next. What are the what's the next big industry and, and investing in that industry? It's it's not it's not an easy task for private firms, let alone for for public officials. If you had ten minutes with both the mayor of um, San Francisco and the mayor of say uh, Flint, Michigan, what would you tell them, and and how would your conversations differ in between the two? I would tell them that the one of the best investment that local government can make is in the skills and the human capital in education of their labor force. And that that does not guarantee that there's going to be future economic growth, but certainly increases the probability. Mm-hmm. The mayor of Flint cannot expect Flint to become Silicon Valley. There's no policy that will make Flint look like San Francisco 
in, in three years. There's no secret cookbook that if you only do ABC, you're going to get your Silicon Valley. Uh, what, what he or she can do is uh, maximize the probability that, that firms, that, that you know, by, by increasing the skill of the labor force, by increasing the education of its residents, that whatever new ideas, new product, new, new, new startups might be generated, they will, will, will stick, will, will stay. Because that's ultimately the way that a lot of innovation hubs in the U.S. have come to be. Where the Silicon Valley or Seattle is the mm. organic success of a local firm that grows and becomes the seed around which a new cluster agglomerates. Uh, and uh, that, that has a lot to do with, with, with serendipitous effects, but also you, know, you, you, you need to have a fertile ground for that seed to fall upon. And that right. fertility depends on how skilled your labor force is how well-educated, how essentially how many workers with college degree or master's degree you are in your workforce. That makes sense. As a final question, could you give our listeners an idea of what your current research agenda looks like? What are you most excited about at the moment? Uh, I have a, a variety of projects uh, that all center on this set of topics. Uh, the one that uh, I'm, most, I'm presenting right now is the one I mentioned before on the the standard of living you know, is the first time we have objective measures of standard of living for uh, high-income households and low-income households across mm. the U.S. cities. So I'm, I'm very excited. Uh, that's hopefully uh, it's the end of a project that took a long time to, to be finished because it was a very complicated data collection process, data clean process. But it's, of, it's hopefully it's the beginning of a number of follow-up uh, questions. For example, the first one that I want to work on is now that I have good measure of standard of living is to see, to, try, to correlate those standard of living measures with migrat- my internal migration flows. Are people moving toward the places that uh, offer the highest standard of living? Um, and uh, if not, what is impeding uh, the geographical reallocation of labor? That sounds amazing. I'm excited to read about it. Enrico Moretti, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichdok. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Thank you.